Hello, and thank you for joining me for the 11th and final episode in our special series of podcasts spotlighting the Arizona Institutes for Resilient Environments and Societies and their work with individuals, businesses, and communities to manage risks associated with climate change and discover opportunities associated with solving the climate crisis. Today, we're taking a deep dive into all the elements that impact our environmental health resiliency. It's a fascinating topic. It's a great podcast coming your way. Trust me, stay here with me, and thanks for joining me for this important series. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Impact Earth. Our guest for this next hour is Mark Verhogstreit, and his journey are not sound bites. I can't do a quick overview of his past. It's safe to say his experience runs wide and deep, and I want to give you a sense of just who is joining me in the studio today and certainly give you many reasons why you'll want to stay right here with me. Mark is an assistant professor in the Mel and Edith Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. He is a co-director of the Environment, Exposure Science, and Risk Assessment Center, ESRAC, which I probably won't be saying again, and the Director of Rural Health Profession Program and a visiting scientist at the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project. He completed his PhD degree at Michigan State University and his postdoctoral fellowships at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the University of Arizona. In his everyday life, Dr. Mark, that's what I'm going to call you, it's so much easier, is a health-related environmental microbiologist. He examines the source, transport, and occurrence of pathogens in the environment, measures human exposures to pathogens, and defines associated risks to mitigate adverse health outcomes. And I just want you to kind of press pause on that if you have to press rewind on your Spotify app. It's worth it because there's a lot in that sentence. His research includes assessment of microorganisms in irrigation canals, beaches, estuaries, rivers, lakes, groundwater wells, and household drinking water systems. So it's so relevant to so many aspects of our life. His research has highlighted multiple hazards in each system, and many were driven by land use characteristics and shockingly human activity. Mark's most recent research has quantified microbe and metal occurrences in water distribution systems of underrepresented individuals, modeled expected outcomes, and defined appropriate water treatment interventions for the most vulnerable communities. Again, a lot packed in that statement. Ultimately, Mark aims to reduce waterborne pathogen infections that exacerbate chronic diseases by combining environmental assessment, novel dose response approaches, and risk assessment models all to inform water and health-oriented interventions. So did you get all that, all of my wonderful listeners? Um, To me, the absorption rate for the scope, magnitude, and contributions of his work is steep but well worth pushing rewind because we are at a pivotal time in our evolution as a species. And I, for one, find great comfort in knowing that people like Mark exist and are passionate about our environmental health. We need him. It really matters. So Mark, welcome. I I didn't even take a breath, I don't think. That was like a four-minute introduction. Well-deserved, my friend. And 
We've spent some wonderful time together. I rarely agree to meet with a guest prior to the show, but you said it would make you feel more comfortable. And it's always like when I have a little resistance, I'm so glad when I say yes, because it was so worth it. And it was it was worth it on so many levels. So thank you. I'm thankful that you asked and that we did it because it was fun. It seemed like it was five minutes. And I think it was about two hours, right? Yes, it was. Thank you, Gina, Something so much like for having that. me here. Oh my, it's Very just, excited. We have big smiles on our face, if you can't tell. So I would say if there was a theme for this, it's environmental health resiliency, because it's not just about environmental health. You're working on the resiliency piece, which is everything these days. It's a big concept. So I can give it a shot from our meeting. This is like you're testing me, okay? I wanted to set it up that way so you can see what my absorption rate was, because I read all those notes. Environmental health is not the health of the environment, but rather what happens to our health when the environment changes. So did I get a passing grade? That is correct. And I'll even take that to a, another step. Yes, because I not, want you to do all the talking from now on. Oh, good. So it's not just the aspects of human health. It's truly our quality of life. And it's determined by the physical, the chemical, the biological, and the social aspects of the environment around us. And it's not just physical health, it's our mental health as well, which as we know right now, being locked behind Zoom screens, uh, our health, our mental and physical health is uh, detriment right now. And you challenge that, and I'm not going to go off topic. I am not. But when you think about what replaced a lot of good mental health activities, it's social media and being in front of screens and checking your email and being on Facebook because that's what you did. I have stopped and I'm reading more than I have ever read because I was scared. I was really scared. It's awful. So you explained what it is. Why should we care so much? That's a big one. How do you make it so relevant to our listeners? Because you certainly made it relevant to me. It's a fantastic question that I always like starting all of my lectures with, with all of my students. So right now, environmental health is an evolving field due to climate change, due to the need to be more resilient in all of our communities. Uh, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, Medicine this morning had a workshop that started this conversation, moving towards a future of environmental science. And it included exactly what I hope you and I can talk about today and so much more. Why should we all care? Well, honestly, it's because every action that you take, that I take, will affect every other person on this earth. Every single one. Every single person, because pollution knows no boundaries. Whatever happens in China, whatever happens in Los Angeles, will ultimately affect those living in Tucson. And vice versa. Whatever we do will affect every other single person in this world as well. And it's because we live in a system of systems and not these silos that everyone thinks we do. Why do people think that? And you got me to understand that. We don't live in silos. We live in an integrated system of all of these things swirling. That's the way I see it. I think people think about this because we live in our small networks. We live on our social medias that are soundbox for our ideas. We live with our, our closest friends and our closest neighbors. And Right now, especially the last two years, we haven't been able to immerse in different cultures with our uh, international trips, right? Travel has largely been shut down. Additionally, we don't realize this because the systems are so complex. We are sitting in a room right now full of technology. That technology just did not appear. The resources to build all the technology had to be harvested from somewhere, somewhere in the world. The people who were doing those harvestings are at risk from multiple different contaminants or pollutants, um, air uh, particulate matter for one, those workers are adversely affected because we want technology. 
But it's not just uh, negative here. They have jobs because of commercialization and because we buy equipment. So it is this cycle. It's a system of economics. It's a system of environmental health. And the more we can dig in to the complexities of globalization, the more understanding for environmental health that we'll understand and we'll know that our actions, we can start to change, which will start to improve the health of everyone else around the world. So one of the things that's going to happen during this show, which is somewhat different for me, is I am so super focused on your answers that there might be little pauses here because I'm not thinking of the next question. I'm thinking about what you said, just as the same as when we had our meeting. So it isn't environmental health. It isn't the same as climate change. Is that right? I mean, I'm trying to, I, that's the part I said. It's the climate changes, Um. So it affects our environment, but it's not just climate change. Is that, am I making sense? How is it different now due to climate change, our environmental health? So it impacts it, but it's not, that's not the whole deal. I wish the answer was linear, and I wish I could just say one, two, three. That's why I have to really pay attention. This is a cycle. <laughs> um, so I just came out of lecture for my undergrad class. It's an uh, intro to environmental health sciences. In that lecture, I was talking about the Anthropocene, which is the epoch where human activity is dominated. Uh, the global. Right. Yep. So, uh, Anthropocene and environmental health. It was a complex lecture because Anthropocene is the growth of human population. That's the primary driver of the epoch. When we have 7.9 billion people on this earth right now, that requires us to have certain resources, whether it's food and water at our basic needs or our cell phones and all the technology that we're using. All of those resources change the environment, change the climate. As we have abundant, cheap fossil fuel energy, 7.9 billion people burning fossil fuels, that's going to change the environment. When the environment changes, so does our health and our, our relationship with the environment. So we're having increased temperatures uh, throughout Tucson. We've seen this already. When we have hotter temperatures, it's a known, it's now um, been reported in multiple papers that the biomarkers for stress and aggravation increase. And so we have more days, I believe it's 20 more days over 100 degrees Fahrenheit that we can expect in Tucson as climate change progresses. That's 20 more days where we will have more aggressive drivers. We will have more biomarkers of stress. And that is one hyper-local example of how a changing climate affects our health and how you know, more and more people in this world will ultimately change our environment more and more, and we will start to see that. One more example from this is how we relate to our natural environment. As we continue to grow, more and more people will leave our cities and we expand our cities, which we largely expand into our uh, natural lands. Right. As we do that, we are becoming more exposed to wild animals. And there's an increased chance for that crossover of pathogens that primarily exist in animals to cross over into humans. This is something that we're seeing with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, with that, there's an increased opportunity for pandemics. So we have seen over the last 20 years, uh, five pandemics. In the previous 2,000 years of record, we had 12. And so we are now seeing uh, an increase in the frequency and number of Acceleration pandemic. like unreal. Yeah. So, so it's so interesting to me as I sit here and reflect. 
Jim Beiser really wanted me to do this interview with you. And I listened to him. He's one of my dearest friends. I have so much respect for him. And the timing of what you have chosen to do. Did you have like a crystal ball and you could see here comes a pandemic? Because the next thing I want to talk to you about, and I I mean this sincerely, I want to talk about epidemiology because you and I talked about that People use that word. If I went down to um, Hotel Congress in Tucson in downtown and I had a little mic and said, can you tell me what your idea of epidemiology is? Give me a definition for it. That being said, you said at the start of this interview that there are things that you want to cover. And if that is not one of them, you get to decide because you have important topics. But I think understanding that in relative to what just happened and public health risk and all of that... I, it's large scale, it's big brain thinking. So if you could just go and do a little Reader's Digest for Mrs. Green on the whole concept of epidemiology and what we know about it, which for me, the answer would be zip. I don't know anything about epidemiology. I know it's a word and I can spell it. There it goes. I'm going to do a bit of a political answer here and say, <laughs> Love it. I'm not an epidemiologist, so I will leave the discussion of epidemiology to the epidemiologist, but I am a public health expert. Perfect. And when I talk about public health, most people think of epidemiology, but environmental health sciences is a part of public health. One of the key components of environmental health and public health is the practice of assessing, correcting, controlling, and preventing environmental factors that potentially affect human health. So from an environmental health scientist perspective, I don't want to study a pandemic as it's ongoing. I want to prevent the next pandemic from occurring. And in order to do that, I need to understand how pathogens emerge, transport, and infect humans. And when I can do that, then I can start to put a risk to specific events throughout our world, whether it's through drinking water, food safety, or the air that we breathe. And then we can put the interventions in place. So increased uh, filtration at the drinking water system, increased washing at the food processing plant, or increased HVAC filtration uh, in our homes and our buildings in order to prevent that next pandemic and make our communities that much more resilient. So I will probably never get tired of talking about COVID. And it's not in an unhealthy way. It's almost like it's given us a gift saying, knock, knock, who's there? I'm COVID, but there's several of my <laughs> my relatives behind me. Because I remember also sitting with Jim Beiser and what you brought up, he said, when we start encroaching on areas like the rainforest and we never had any human contact with those bats, we don't know what they're carrying. And there are many more friendlies in the Amazon that we don't want to, they're unfriendly when they come out and have the the human experience. So for COVID, when someone says there's strong evidence to support that it started in wet markets, what does that even mean? Tell me that in English. Yeah, so wet markets are found when animals, live animals, and humans coexist in the same environment. Um, And these animals are usually kept in very tight quarters and cages, and the humans will interact with them very intimately every single day. Um, There is close proximity, so there's the opportunity for the animal to have biological material, you know, spit and blood and feces, to make its way into human exposures very easily or onto other food products. Um, The pathogens that are included in those biological materials make their way into our human body. And that's one route, the ingestion route, that we could potentially be exposed to 
uh, some of these zoonotic pathogens, which just a quick reminder, zoonotic pathogens are microorganisms that can cause disease which spread between humans and animals. So what it conjures up in my mind is I went to Hong Kong and it was it was rough some of those areas for me to see. I'm kind of queasy about that stuff anyway. Like I cooked a lot of chicken last week and it was organic and it was from a farmer and all that. And I was still like, oh, I don't want to touch this. So in those areas, is it particularly limited to certain areas of our globe? We are a global nation. We are one planet. Or is it everywhere? Do we have to worry about wet markets in the United States? That's a good question that I actually don't know the specific answer to. I've never seen one, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen one either, but I do see children and I do see people playing in the in natural environments all of the time. Uh, we've seen all the social media posts where people are trying to get close to wildlife and it can backfire. All the all the failed attempts where whether it's a bison charging a human or a small squirrel running after somebody or a monkey stealing uh, food from another human, right? So... While we may not need to worry about the wet markets, there's plenty of opportunities for that crossover for to occur. Yes. <laughs> for other ways to worry. Thanks yeah. for affirming that, Mark. I really appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> and just remember, rabies is a zoonotic pathogen that is still here in the United States. It's still raging. Uh, we had to deal with Ebola about five or eight years ago. Uh, avian influenza. We're hearing more about a new avian influenza in our chicken populations um, and taxoplasmosis from our cats to humans. So there's a lot more... Uh, zoonotic pathogens out there than just SARS-CoV-2. And I love that because playing the blame game is really a fool's errand. I mean, it really is. It's look around in your neighborhood. And last week we were out of town, we were out of state, and my daughter is very news focused. And there was an attack by a javelina on a woman in Tucson. And I mean a full-on attack. I have lived here 50 years, never heard anything like it. And she went out to empty her garbage. He charged her, which could happen. Maybe there was, you know, babies, that part wasn't covered. But it stayed at her gate for 20 minutes. Javelina don't do that. We've had plenty of javelina in this yard and in the other houses we've lived, and you can scare them with a loud noise. So to me, we all said, you know, the doctors that we are, <laughs> we assess that armchair doctor um, that it has to be rabies because javelina don't do that. So I don't know the end of that story. So let's move on to something really happy <laughs> and, okay. and talk about one of your passions is one health. What is it? Why should we all care? It's all about you now. So tell us about One Health. Yeah, One Health is a new uh, field, at least at the University of Arizona. We started this program uh, probably about 2015. And this is the interaction and the overlap of environmental health, human health, and animal health, knowing that they are all closely intertwined and you can't have one without affecting the other. Uh, so the U of A um, is now investing quite heavily into this. We've submitted a number of proposals to fund research pillars in One Health. We have multiple certificates that students can get in One Health, whether it's a master's degree, a certificate, a bachelor's of science degree. There are a number of opportunities to get involved in this, knowing that our worlds are complex and they're only getting more uh, complex as we think about our interactions with animals and the natural environment. And so as we move forward, we're going to need to develop students who can think critically about all three. We can develop doctors, we can develop um, veterinarians, and we can develop environmental biologists, all fantastic. 
we need to bring all three of those together to make sure that as our population increases, as these interactions with the uh, wildlife and our wild environments continue to increase, that we have the experts in the world who can understand how pandemics are going to emerge and how we can protect all three of these critical um, pillars in our world and make sure that none of them are going to collapse because if one collapses, they all collapse. And it goes back to your analogy of we're not living in silos anymore, especially as there is encroachment and crowded populations, people moving to cities. It's more and more and more um, important, I guess, or the emphasis on having big, big, big vision, big brain thinking and not blinders and not just a super focus. And that's what excited me about the whole concept because it doesn't happen that way. We have a cat or a dog and all of those different things that you go to the vet for one thing, but to have brains that are understanding. And I guess what I, I, this is, I want to know, and I don't even think that maybe anybody knows the answer, but like 2015, what was happening that scientists and people were seeing that drove this? Because it's really important. And I got that. As soon as you explained to me, it's like, yeah, we better start thinking, I use the word holistically and not silos, which is a big downfall of a lot of scientists. They are myopic and they just focus. And all that you are about is the integration of thought. That's a great point. It was not U of A who coined the term One Health. This has been around for a long time, and it's gone uh, by a lot of different names. Um, So we recognized, though, in 2015 that the U of A was trying to generate a veterinary medicine program. Got it. We also, in the College of Public Health, were really focused on human health and, in my case, environmental health. So we already knew we had the experts there or that would soon be there, and there was actually a person who came in and gave a seminar to the College of Public Health on One Health. We had a short meeting with him after his seminar. And from there, this program has just grown. And now we've hired a number of people in One Health and we have you know, 10 to 15 students graduating with a master's of public health degree in One Health every single year. It could never be more important. Agreed. It never. I mean, looking forward to it. And I, I've told you this, I'm going to live a very long time. So I want to be invited to this party and have people smart, educated, dedicated, passionate people looking at things holistically because the planet is literally a lot smaller. I mean, COVID put the spotlight on that. And that's why I don't get tired of talking about it. We have so many wonderful things we can learn from that. So which leads me, it's a perfect segue to another thing you talked about. And I was laughing because I took really darn good notes. And when I opened them up yesterday, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talked about that. I'm going to ask Mark about that. So environmental adaptation is another thing that you talk to me about quite a bit. And I love that. What is it? What does it look like? How do we get there? So talk, because it's not about, we used to talk about raising awareness about climate change. Well, that is so yesterday. Nobody talks about that anymore. It's about resilience, mitigation, adaptation. So talk to us about environmental adaptation in the through the lens of all that you know, and we'll bring up sp- some specific examples that you brought, which you might not even remember because I was the one taking the notes, but about, you know, why do we have pecan trees growing in Pinal County? And I don't want to jump to that, but tell us about what that means, environmental adaptation. So if I break this down, environmental adaptation from an environmental health perspective, we start to think about how our environment is changing and how humans are going to 
meet a changing world. And another sense is you brought up the pecan trees. We have a lot of those growing in Arizona where they should not be growing because ever. of ever um, because of the amount of water that they are that they consume in order to produce you know a pistachio nut. So as we start to think about adaptation, I start to think about what are the outcomes that we're finding now as we try to adapt to this changing environment. Animals and people are moving to the coast and are moving to the poles throughout the whole world. And as we do that, we're again going to come into contact with more and more material and organisms that we haven't come into contact with before. Prior to the pandemic, prior to mass transit, a pathogen could only travel as far as you could walk or ride a horse in a single day or as in, in a single lifetime. Now, we can be anywhere around the world in one day. And so that is how some of these pandemics are allowed to spread so quickly. You can be at the source of a pandemic one day and spread it literally around the world within 24 hours. With a sneeze. With a sneeze, yep. Another term that's been put around with environmental health is the exposome, and that's an individual's cumulative lifetime environmental exposure and how it's related to biological responses. Again, this is this is changing in our world. So we are, we're going to have to adapt to new chemicals, to new biological influences, whether it's more heat or new chemicals as we try to keep our environments cleaner. Remember early on in the pandemic, we were wiping down cereal boxes and chip bags with chemicals. And there's a risk-risk trade-off. I don't know how many people were licking cereal boxes and that would have been the exposure. <laughs> Probably <route>. my granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> but as we added more and more chemicals into our life to try to fight the, the virus. What did that actually do to the health and our adaptation to it? So the next part of it is when you bring that up, because I mean, for me, I'm like a social justice nerd, nut, whatever, because when you talk about that it, from the social justice part of it, I'm of course thrilled with all the University of Arizona, University of Arizona doing with um, the Navajo Nation and the lack of clean water. And I did get to interview Carletta Chief. And she said, so what did everybody say when the pandemic came? Wash your hands for 20 seconds. Easy for me to do. Not so much for the Navajo Nation, 40% of whom the people there don't have access to clean water and electricity. It's like 35 for one and 40 for another. But it's just another thing about the Great Divide and how do we protect those people um, on whose land we now live, right? So it's it's so far-reaching when you talk about the adaptation piece of it. So how about things like, you and I talked a little bit about um, environmental adaptation when it comes to places that people love. And I come to mind for me, the sacred Santa Rita's, which is just, when I first started this over 15 years ago, the people from the copper mine said, it's a done deal. The fire service buys in on it's just a matter of time and we've got lots of money. They said that to me, like seriously, it wasn't a secret. And I go down there a lot. We love to go to Sonoida and Patagonia, which for listeners around the country is a beautiful riparian zone. Birders come from all over the world to see the flora and the fauna and all kinds of rare birds. So that's, I call it the sacred Santa Rita's because I think they are. Another place is Oak Creek Canyon where it's just a little bit of paradise. It's in the northern part of the state above Flagstaff. And 
if we don't do some more environmental adaptation, isn't it within the realm of possibility that we'll wake up one day for lots of reasons and they'll be gone? I don't want to wake up that day. You bring up a really good point about the water sources as well. So there's those two are about water. Yes. The uh, paper just came out within the last few months that showed intermediate streams in the Southwest are actually flowing about 100 days less per I saw year it yesterday. than 1980. And so that not only has the consequences for water and sanitation health, but also we know that views of and visits to water bodies reduces biomarkers of stress. So when we have less water, we're going to have more stress in our lives. And this is this is really well known. So these biomarkers are, are constantly being triggered. So we have a lot of inflammation in our body now. Beyond just access to the water, if the water is disappearing, the water that's left behind might not be of the highest quality. And we know that water pollution accounts for about 1.2 million deaths per year globally. So there's a lot of issues from a quantity and quality standpoint. And... The more we think about our growing population, you know, 7.9 billion people, we have a very globalized infrastructure when it comes to almost everything. You talked about basically mining for copper in the Santa Ritas. That is something, not in my backyard, is a phrase that we often hear about. But do we want cell phones? Do we want our computers? It's complex. It is very complex. You're right. Technology. Yeah. We're a technology-driven world. Yeah. And so these local issues, these local environmental issues, they have global implications. What used to be, oh, my creek dried up, um, I can't farm. Now it becomes our creek dried up and another country may not have food. It's really happening. It's happening. When we, we came back from New Mexico... For the first time ever, and I've been going there for 30 years, the Rio Grande is a puddle. It's a puddle. And someone said, well, the rains better come. And I say, they better come like Moses, 40 days and 40 nights without stopping, because it's not going to be like a good rainy season makes it all get better. So the next part I want to talk about, it's like I tried to make it short. I tried to be brief. I tried to figure out how I can be succinct in asking this, but... I want to weave into this conversation the myriad of challenges and for people listening and getting engaged in solutions when it comes to the climate crisis. To me, this is a part that's a little bit long and I couldn't figure out how to shorten it. So stay with me, everybody. It's a Gina rant and you're used to it. There are still a surprising number of people questioning the science, not caring about facts. And I'd like to believe that it was a small, insignificant part. I did believe that about eight years ago. It seems to be spreading like the virus. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm reading the wrong set of facts. Um, It appears ludicrous, I think, to people like you and me. And something that Jim Beiser said to me when I asked him about how do you deal with it if somebody comes up to you, and I wrote, his quote down and I made sure it was correct because believe me, I can I can really just murder those kind of quotes. I know what I know and I know how I know what I know, which is think what's in there. He knows what he knows because he knows how he got that information, right? And then he's gone on to say, um, I suggest that you ask yourself, how do you know what you know? So it's very, to me, benign, non um, it's it's respectful way of putting it back on the person. 
And he usually follows it up with, I'm not asking you to answer me, but just think about it on your way home. And that's so Jim Beiser. It's like, I know why I know. I know why I'm saying what I'm saying. And I have all of these things to back it up. So he's basically asking people to think or to believe in a certain way. Do you have any answer for me about what is the barrier here for people ignoring the science and the experts? Because I'm not, I'm not trying to be naive or you know, pull the dumb card. I don't understand because I spent a lot of time with that science, with those facts, with preparing to have the respect of a good interview for people like you. What, what is going to help with that divide? Because to me, all it is is a big distraction. It's a huge distraction. Like you're keeping your eye on that ball. You're going to be so sorry when you don't have a swimming pool, running water or clean water to brush your teeth, buddy. So is, is there a question there? Yes. What, how do you handle that? Wow. That is a hard question. (laughs) It is. And Jim, I know he'll listen to this and he'll crack up, but you are faced with it. You have students that might not agree with everything you say. So to me, that's a very benign, very thoughtful comeback. So is that the answer could be, we'll just steal what Jim said, and that's good. We'll make him have him a famous quote in some book. But is there a way that you deny it? I mean, I think about Catherine Hayhoe, world-renowned climate scientist, she doesn't engage. That's her answer. She goes, I will not talk to climate deniers. I will not be on a panel with them. I will not do interviews in the media with them. Don't even ignore it is her thing. It's like, it's not worth ignoring. I'm not going to spend any time with it. So you have a long future and you'll be facing a lot of that. What are your thoughts? What comes up for you about how you'll handle it? Just ignore it and do what you do and know what you know? When this occurs, I usually try to provide evidence-based information. I'm not a social scientist, so right, I don't right. study how people think and react um, and communicate. Uh, that is one of the shortcomings of scientists, though, right? We, we're not effective communicators. What I like to do with my students is prevent, present the information in an enthusiastic manner that they can relate to. So I will present a topic, give the background and start to relate it back at a global, a national, and a local level. So no matter where a student presides or lives, they are they can relate to an experience, to an example. So there's a lot of use of case studies in my classes, um, and a lot of those case studies are mind-blowing. They're the extreme. So we want to hear more about the extreme events, and that's how people can relate, whether it's in Tucson and the Santa Cruz River drying up, which used to support 8,000 people year-round with fresh-flowing water and fish, and now it sometimes flows you know, after a monsoon or when we are treating our uh, wastewater and discharging the environment. So I don't have a very specific answer on that. But that's a great answer. I like to provide the information... And I stated that even today to my students. I am not here to make the decision for you. I am here to present the information to you, and you can make that decision going forward. Another Jim Beiser quote, I believe, went along the way of, you now have the information, and if you make a decision, you are still making a decision. If you choose to ignore the information, you are making a choice. Got it. Yes, it's really a good answer. So what about the... I love this part. I don't know if you have answers, but a lot of times in these shows, I think people leave and they're like, what the heck am I supposed to do? What can I do? 
And I think you have some answers for that. What, what is the way that people can find, like if we say the sacred Santeritas, I know what to do. And I've had them on the show and I have signed petitions and I have called elected officials. That's something to do. Do you have other ideas like for Oak Creek Canyon, for the copper mine? And, and you, you, you set up the perfect dilemma because I want my cell phone. And that's the whole thing about it's so like in my brain, you want your cell phone, but you want the copper to be sourced ethically. You know there's not an infinite amount of supply. It's not a renewable. It's not. So I have to wait for some brilliant kid who's now two years old coming up to say, we don't need copper. We can do this. Um, I don't have that much time. So what are some of the things that you tell your students about engagement and ways to activate critical thinking and do something about an issue? Do you have an answer for that? Is that even a fair question? Again, I think I'd just like to present the facts, present the science, and present where we're at. I, I will present as well solutions, potential solutions, whether they're mainstream or not, um, because that is really good information that students, as they start to think critically and try to solve a problem, that they're going to want to be able to pull back some of those random facts or some of the random technology that might be making its way out there. For me, I am trying to lead by example. Awesome. Yes. So we have one vehicle in our household and I bike almost everywhere. We've got solar. We live in a small house. We could definitely move up if we needed more space, but we don't need it right now. I don't want that to be uh, to change how I live my life. I enjoy being outside in nature. And so I think by leading by example and not preaching, but explaining the science, explaining what happens when you choose to get a new cell phone every single year and the price that that pays... Uh, somebody else has to pay with their health or the transportation that has to go into that uh, if I chose to buy a larger house somewhere outside of town to have more space. When we make those decisions, we affect somebody else. And I think this is one of the main takeaways is that our actions always affect somebody else. Whether we commute short-term or long distances, if we get a cell phone every single year, if we update our technology whenever new technology exists, that comes at the expense of somebody else and other communities. The copper mine, wherever it is, I was up in Marenzi this weekend and there's a copper mine, the largest open pit copper mine in the United States at 80 square miles. And to see that and see that they move mountains in a year. It takes your breath away, not in the best of ways. I've been there too. And what did our students do? We got there and we took pictures on our cell phones. Right, Right, you bring it back to where the point where it hurts. I don't like to hear that. And that example, we had a zero waste day here, the first in our city. And doing something the first time, I've definitely, I'm proud to say that I'm very clear that I have courage. I do have courage. I'm out there on the edge, not ever thinking that I'm, I'm so courageous. But when you do something for the first time, the big question mark, is it going to be a success or a failure? And you have to be comfortable with either. And I was ridiculously obsessed with the e-waste collection. We got um, Evolve to come with their big truck. And I'm there, of course, saying, oh my gosh, what if people don't bring anything? What if people don't bring anything? And in our home, I was peeling back wires of cords to see if there was copper in it. And James said, there's not enough copper there to even have it worthwhile. And I'm like, dude, yes, we're putting it in the box. 
And I know that because I know the people that do this and they peel it off and every bit of copper is so important. So to me, it was a smashing success. People started lining up at 7.30 and it started at 9. And I'm I'm just a worrier about stuff like that. And it was so affirming because there were boxes of books. There were hundreds of pounds of shredding, thousands of pills. That was the big shocker for me. People don't know what to do with their medication, which, as you say, if they flush it down the toilet, it affects the environment. That's why people are drinking water with Ambien in it. I mean, it's it's almost that simple. So to your point, it's really about thinking and making your actions meaningful and intentional, which isn't always easy to do, where a lot of us are on autopilot and don't even think about it. Believe me, I do now, and this family does now too. It's like everything. So it's just that awareness and getting the sense in your own head and heart that whatever I do has an impact on my family, my home, my environment, the planet. And and once that's in you, I think it's easier. Like for me, I read the labels, I find the brand I trust, and you're in. And secondhand stores, it's in me now. Like when I go into retail stores, I'm like, what? That is That blouse is $70? I can get that at Goodwill for 20 So it's a good feeling and it's just that kind of adaptation for the environment that I know because the filthy fashion industry, it's one word to me, filthy fashion industry. So now we're at the point where what else do you want to share? Because we covered we covered a lot of things that I wanted to. So are there big bullets that you're saying, Gina, did you forget this? Or I really wanted to share this because you can. I think a couple of key takeaways that we talked before we came Would on to the recording it. was this fact that during the pandemic, we stopped traveling and it's added to a lot of stress on everyone. When we travel, we share experiences, we share cultures, and we try to understand what other people live like, how other people live. When we have those shared experiences, when it creates an environment where we can actually have that meaningful dialogue that we actually need to have. Uh, We talked a little bit about I'm not a uh, communication expert. I'm not a social scientist. I don't know how to communicate my research as effectively as some other people. But it doesn't always have to be a science and research-based conversation. Just understanding how one person uses resources versus another. In rural America, we use resources to make a living. And in an urban center, we may not realize that water needs to be withdrawn to grow our food, to grow the cotton that we use uh, to make our clothes, to produce electricity. All we will see is that Arizona is getting cut off or Phoenix and Tucson is not receiving as much water as they had in the past. Well, that's because we're still using that water indirectly. There's a lot of this shared dialogue that we can start to have when we meet each other in their place. So a good example of that to me, of the disconnect, and I don't want to be, you know, Nelly negative over here, but I read a very long article about the development in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is a national show, but I live here in Arizona, so I have much fresher examples and things that come through my newsfeed. But the development of Phoenix, and folks, in case you haven't read the statistics, our water supplies are shrinking so dramatically that even for me, it's staggering. Lake Powell, Lake Mead, the Colorado, I told you about the Rio Grande. Water is life. 
bam, period, hard stop, water is life. So I'm concerned about that as an environmental educator, as someone who deeply committed herself to preservation of this great planet of ours and cares about Mother Earth. And when you see developers putting eighty plans for 8,200 homes in the Phoenix area, I was like, it almost took my breath away because it's not good for them either. People will default on their mortgages. They probably don't care about that because it's the first sale. But there's got to be a more effective way where we work on the connectedness, which is I, which is what I love about the things that you're talking about, One Health. It's all connected. And if Phoenix uses up all of our water, Tucson has done a great job at being prepared. Well, they're going to come in the middle of the night. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to even say that, but that's what you're saying. It's like we just have to be so aware. And if there's anything anything that the COVID pandemic taught us is that we are one planet. And if you think it's just happening in China, that's just today. Till that first businessman or woman gets on the plane and arrives in Newark, New Jersey, and they've been sneezing. It's that quick. And that was not the case. Even 50 years ago, people didn't fly like they do now. We used to think it was a big deal to go meet my dad at the airport. I think it's over 50 years. But it's it's a very rapidly changing, accelerated pace. So when something comes up like a germ that's going to hurt us, it's going to spread. That's a great point. And you, to your last point, when a germ spreads, that's a big deal. I've never been in an environment where only one germ was detected. I've never been in a system where I was doing research where I only detected one contaminant. We are exposed to multiple pathogens. We're exposed to multiple chemicals and multiple metals. Every time we breathe, every time we drink water, and every time we put a piece of food in our mouths. So some of the latest research that I am starting to look at is truly how do we measure that exposome? What does that true whole life exposure have on uh, the, how does it affect our health? So we, how do we start to manage different exposures to mixtures, uh, a mixed contaminant exposure event? where we may be exposed to a pathogen and a metal and a chemical all at once. What does that mean for the health, acute and chronic health outcomes? Right now, we our policy is one contaminant at a time. We monitor for one contaminant in drinking water at a time. If you exceed that, the water's unsafe. But if there's five different chemicals or five different contaminants in the water and they're all below thresholds, that water's deemed safe but we don't know what the true endpoints are from a health standpoint. And that's truly where my research is going right now, is trying to understand our real-world exposures, looking at the mixtures that we consume through drinking water. So we've got projects uh, along the border and in some of our rural and underserved communities really starting to look at what are people drinking in their, in their groundwater. Um, they don't have the same municipal treatments that we would here in Tucson, which our water is treated very well, um, and I consider Tucson water very safe. But in our rural communities that they're drawing groundwater and may not be monitoring as frequently as they should, what are they being exposed to and how is that affecting health? And you don't have to be a rocket scientist or you to really look at everything in terms of cancer rates and heart disease and diabetes. I mean, there it goes on and on and on. And when I started on this journey, and I, I'm 15 years in, it's either what you eat, what you breathe, 
or what you drink because that's it. What you put on your body, it's not, it is not rocket science because all of those things that I mentioned changed. Do you think that my mother had four different kinds of shampoos for us with four kids? No, we used soap, brown soap, and it had no chemicals in it. And it was, it got us clean. I washed my hair with it. Don't go in my my shower now. I do better. I have because I'm Mrs. Green and I, you know, follow environmental working group. But the choices and the market and the marketing that get us to do that. And, you know, you and I could sit here and talk for a long time about our food, our compromised food supply. It's not just how bad it is, the quality being so compromised, but what those little goodies that are in it that we might be eating. And I know this is going to be a really weird question, but I think I've done that a couple of times for you so far. I feel safe. That's my safe spot. So you have the most adorable little four-month-old I mean, I'm not making that up. She is, we love round babies. She's got the most beautiful face. She's perfect. Does it help inspire you or strengthen your passion? Because I'm going to answer for me. My three-year-old granddaughter makes me want to keep fighting this fight because she's three. I'll be dead. <laughs> I will. When when the, the real you-know-what hits the fan, I think I'm going to see some of it. We already are. There's people dying every day from starvation, from compromised water supply, lack of water. Does it make you smile and think, I'm going to keep doing this because little precious one, you're worth it? Does it impact your your passion or did you have it already? We could take this in so many different directions. But <laughs> I love yes. It. I think I'm really being mean to you almost. <laughs> As a parent, I just want my daughter Molly to be healthy and happy in her life, whatever that so is. So far, so good. So far, so good. <laughs> While I would have my own direction that she would take, you know, an environmental scientist or an environmental <laughs> lawyer, I, I'm not going to put that pressure on her. Uh, from my own perspective, I changed a long time ago. I've changed my impact on the environment a long time ago to minimize my own exposures. And it's only amplified since I've had a daughter. That is now something that's at the forefront There's uh, of every purchase that I make, whether it's got a chemical that I could ingest, breathe, or it touches my skin. It's, it's a constant thought. Our future, I'm actually, one of my colleagues' daughter just won a science competition here in town and it was on water stewardship. And she looked at her mom and said, well, I guess I'm going to have to be an environmental scientist because you aren't changing anything. Wow. Not her specifically, but her as in the, the generations above her and our politicians right now. So I am elated that we've got bright, excited young minds. Like you said, those two-year-olds all the way to the 14-year-olds who are right now entering the, the science and entering school and getting really, really excited about the impacts that they could have. So that's where I am getting uh, rejuvenated. It's not that I can make a big difference. We can continue educating and we can continue giving more of our students and our young, bright minds that excitement. And I hope it catches... Uh, no pun intended, like wildfire. And I hope our younger generation comes to the forefront and solves our problems. So you hit it. You nailed it. And when you said it, I remembered. It's as simple as if it is to be, it's up to me. I love that expression. So being the change, all those things that are life, that those quotes that never die, 
They keep getting repeated. The real change begins with me. It's the only place that it can happen. It's not about them out there or that country or what they're doing. Because I know in the beginning, I'd have people on, they'd say, yeah, well, if we cut our pollution, what about China and India? I can't control that. But I can help work legislation legislation here and with our legislators. So that is not a good answer. Don't start looking outside for answers until you've really gone within. And that's what you just said. I mean, to me, that's profound. And that's the takeaway for our listeners. So, um, oh my gosh, it's like we have four minutes left and it sounded like 15 minutes of time together. So I have some final reflections that I gave a lot of time to, if you're okay with with kind of bringing this to a close. I hope we have ongoing dialogue forever. Um I really thought a lot about this and I worked on it last night about what do I want to say, not even knowing everything that you're going to say, but knowing about you, hearing about you from Jim, spending time with you. So in my 15 years of doing podcasts, I rarely agree to what I call a pre-interview and for a very good reason. People say things that are exciting or important or impactful and it's challenging to repeat those kind of authentic conversations. We did a good job. I took really good notes and you said a lot of really impactful things. It can be frustrating. But Mark really wanted to meet with me, so I said yes. I said yes, of course I will. And I'm so thrilled and honestly grateful that I did because I learned so much about who this man is and how he shows up in the world. He's a new dad, which may have strengthened his passion for making a difference. He explained that. For the planet or very at the very least, affirmed his commitment. And I'm also thrilled because we had a chance to talk about lots of big brain stuff. Mark's passion is so obvious and definitely contagious. And truth be told, that afternoon, I didn't want our conversation to end, and I left him with my brain swirling, no silos, swirling. I had a swirling dervish brain, not whirling. It was swirling with lots to think about and process. And I was excited about what I learned from our time together. So once again, I knew that my world had expanded a little bit more. The complexities of the many challenges we face as citizens of the planet were reinforced, if not expanded. And I was actually filled with gratitude just knowing that people like Mark are out there fighting the good fight, doing the good work, and helping move the green needle forward, even if it's just a bit. And yes, I will say it, my thought was the world needs lot more, lots more Marks. I thank you again for all of it, for what you bring to the world and for your taking the time to be here today, not to mention riding your bike when it is 97 in April. That is a whine on my part. I'm not ready. I'm one of those people you were talking about. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I don't want it to be 97 in April. And my thought was, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go somewhere where it's green. So thank you, my friend, my new friend. It was enlightening, engaging. The time flew. And of course, my final thanks is always to you, our listeners, because as simple as this, without you, there would be no us. And I'm deeply grateful for you. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tina. This has been delightful. 